Welcome to Fate's Wide Wheel, a Quantum Leap podcast with Sam and Dennis. We are coming to you from our top secret headquarters at Project Quantum Leap, but you can find us online at fwwquantumleappod.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fate's Wide Wheel. And please do us a favor by hitting the subscribe button on iTunes. Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to Fate's Wide Wheel, a Quantum Leap podcast with Sam and Dennis. Dennis, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Tired Dad? I'm, you know, Tired Dad, right. Tired Dad number one. Here's Tired yeah. Dad number two. Exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, you know, Hattie has decided to uh, wake up, you know, after five or so hours of sleep, um, which means I've had maybe about two or three hours of sleep. Uh. Uh, and uh, we've been trying to, because Jess usually wakes up a little earlier with her. So I'm the one that gets up with Hattie in the middle of the night, and it has definitely started to take its toll. Um, and today was just a long, busy day in general. But that's okay, because now I get to talk about Quantum Leap. Yes! We're talking about Roberto! Roberto! Exclamation I, point! Yes! <laughs> uh, I, I'm excited about this episode. Uh, I think I said last episode, it's probably at least 15 years since I've watched this episode. Uh, so I remembered... The broad strokes, and you were saying off mic before we started recording that uh, you remember this episode being kind of cheesy, and it is cheesy, uh, but it's a really good episode. So I'm looking forward to talking it, about it. It is a really good episode. I think you know that the that there's some scenes early on that really really sell it for me, and the relationship between Sam and Janie is really well done. Um, I, I, I yeah, there's a lot to like about it. It's funny because a couple of two things that stood out for me before. Uh, I, I did the rewatch, and I hadn't seen it probably in about you know ten, fifteen years either. But I, I, I know I saw it a few times back in the '90s, uh, in addition to the to its initial airing, uh, the chemical plant scenes, and the inhaler. Both of those things kind of stood out to me, and and immediately like came back to me as I was uh, uh, watching again. Um, but yeah, let's just dive right in. So Roberto is directed by Scott Bakula. Have we That's, seen him on the show before? You know, he, I, sound, he sounds really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, this is actually the second of three episodes that uh, Scott will direct. Uh, prior to this, he had directed Permanent Wave. Uh, he'll go on to direct Promised Land in the fifth season. Our writer is Chris Rupenthal, which is a name, of course, we've heard many times. Rupenboogie. That's right. In addition to being an executive producer on the show, um, he has also written a total of ten episodes. This is his ninth episode out of the ten. Uh, we're going to start to see that more and more often now, you know, uh, as, we, as we get into the home stretch, you know. The bulk of everybody's work is behind them. Yeah. Um, but uh, other episodes, of course, that he's written, uh, the great, excellent, awesome Perfect introductory episode, if you don't want to start at the very beginning, Good Morning Peoria. Yep. Uh, of course, you'll be skipping a lot of really great episodes if you do that, but hey. Sure. Uh, also responsible for Animal Frat, Freedom, another uh, favorite of the show here, One Strobe Over the Line, The B-Man, Glitter Rock, Hurricane, Last Gunfighter, and the upcoming Curse of Tahotep, yeah. his final writing credit on the show. And we gotta say, I also think he wrote, uh, if not the music, he at least wrote the lyrics for "I'm Just a Traveler Upon right. the Sea." Yeah, 
And if you stick around past the credits, you will be able to hear it like we do every every episode until Universal shuts us down, <laughs> sends us a C and D. Stop, you know. Stop I, playing. Stop playing that iconic Emmy award-winning <laughs> song. I'll tell you what; it's one of the benefits of flying under the radar, as we do. You know, we can get away with with throwing. A minute and a half of copyrighted music on the end. Of course, now that I've said that, we're getting that that's, that's, Like somebody, <laughs> Somebody's like writing an email right now to Universal like, so, did someone. you know these hacks? These Star Trek <laughs> podcast wannabe actors have your song? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so our air date for Roberto is uh, March 11th, 1992, and the leap date, almost 10 years prior, January the 27th, 1982. Sam has leapt into Roberto Gutierrez, and our location is Destiny, New Mexico. Ooh, and we'll come back to that later. We shall. Uh, Take us away, Dennis. Let's talk about the TV guy description. Sam reports as the host of a tabloid talk show, and he sniffs out a dangerous story with another reporter, played by Delane Matthews. That's fairly straightforward. That's, that's pretty straightforward. Uh, let's talk about uh, what what the show, what this episode was called in other countries. This is pretty straightforward, really. Um in France, it was called, and that, that's the interesting one. Let, let's jump ahead to the boring ones. Uh, in <laughs> in in Italy and Germany, it was just simply aired as Roberto. Uh, All right. And in uh, but France, it was called The King Live. The King Live. The King Live. Okay. And the only thing that's popping to me off the top of my head is some weird comparison with Larry King. Who okay? Who was because I, I think he just got his CNN show like in the last five or seven years at the time. Yeah, well, back when he was ninety five. Back, back <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, oh my God! Uh, you, uh, you. You were around the Indianapolis area for a while. You lived there for I a was. while. I lived down there for almost a decade. Were you aware of Bob and Tom, the morning radio show? Yes, sir. Did you ever hear any of the sketches they did with Larry King, mocking Larry King? God, I don't know if I did. I didn't really listen to them, but it was hard not to be aware of them. It was, uh, I mean, it was, I mean, like, the, regionally, like, they would sell, like, just, like, CDs of the best of their morning sketches. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, you know, I would I would buy the CDs and just listen to the sketches. They had a t- I, I mean, just, like, their their Larry King character was was something. And yeah. I, I, I can't remember. I mean, the only thing I can remember is some bit where, like, because the bit was, like, Larry King would call into the Bob and Tom radio show. And I just remember one bit of, uh, of him calling in and talking about, Going out and splitting wings with B. Arthur, and B. Arthur goes to and B. Arthur goes to grab the last wing, and he's like, "Not today, bitch!" And I clocked her, oh and it was just God. weird. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's just weird stuff out there like that. Yeah. Anyway, um, also of note, uh, this episode had a rating of ten point two million viewers. Yeah, puts it kind of, you know, towards the bottom of the middle of the pack for season four. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and cr- chronologically, it falls in between. Uh, Sam most recently was 
Another uh, just mother. Another mother, just like four months before in September of 1981. Uh, he would next be seen uh, in Odyssey, which was one of the novels, which took place in January of 1983. Uh, his next, uh, uh, Sam's next leap in time in the TV series would be June 1983, Permanent Wave. Yeah. Nice little, nice little clump there. Um so this episode, let's talk just a little bit. We won't go into, you know, we won't get exhaustive with these these names, but let's talk just a little bit about our three big guest stars here and start with Delaine Matthews as Janie. Uh, she's great in this episode. I really enjoy her quite a bit. I think the chemistry between her and Scott is great. And, you know, there's kind of a, almost a, uh, you know, not quite, but almost screwball comedy romance vibe between the two of them early on, you know, something like Tracy and Hepburn or Cary Grant, you know, that sort of thing, which is great. Um, she is probably uh, most known, if you can even count that, for playing uh, the wife on the television program Dave's World. That was a good show. Um, it was a good show, actually. It did get some some, some good critical acclaim. Um and of course, starred the. I can't believe I'm saying this actually, as it's about ready to come out of my mouth. I'm kind of like, man, it's weird to say this. Um, <coughs> excuse me, but the late, the yes. late great Harry Anderson. Um, I was just reminded of that recently because uh, uh, I saw it, Chapter Two, a couple weeks yeah. ago, and he mm-hmm. was uh, and he was Richie in the original uh, 1990 TV miniseries, and I was yeah. like, and so. We, uh, Betsy and I have been slowly watching that the last few nights, the the original miniseries. And yeah, so looking stuff up on that, I was reminded that, yeah, he, he passed away a few years ago, yeah. unfortunately. And, and and of course, you know, neither here nor there, but we might as well mention it since we're talking, uh, and it's us. Uh, in addition to it, of course, uh, also well known for Night Court, um, sure. which, which ran for, for eight years. Um, amateur mu- magician. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's not about him. He's not on the show. Delaine Matthews. Uh, <laughs> yeah. she, uh, she's got a ton of credits uh, going up until about 2012. Uh, and then IMDb kind of uh, trails off. But I'd be shocked just based on the length of her resume if she wasn't working somewhere doing something, uh, you know, in, in, in some capacity. Oh, um, uh, she was on three episodes of The Shield. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, right. Which I, yeah, I'd be hard-pressed. It's been years since I've watched that show. But, uh um, but yeah, so I'm going to jump back and say, uh, you know, you said that you, you really like her and, and Sam's relationship in this episode. Yes. And as a counterpoint, I don't, oh, uh, really? I, I don't like, I, I like their episode in the second half when they, <coughs> when they drop the, the antagonism and, mm. he, and here's why it doesn't work for me as I'm thinking about it is that we've had plenty of episodes where Sam is paired up with a woman who naturally rubs him the wrong way. Uh, like uh, his boss, Patricia, uh, I can't remember the character's name, but Patricia Richardson in Good Morning Peoria. Sure. Uh, The Bounty Hunter episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, This episode... I mean, there's quite a few, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's quite a few where where we follow that trope. This episode, I think, I feel like he's kind of indifferent to her, but... uh, uh, Al eggs him on and says, no, you have to be antagonistic because that's who Roberto is. And like Sam is phoning it in and like he's being antagonistic because that's what Al tells him to do. But like he's not like genuinely really annoyed with her in the first half of the episode. I like their dang I like – 
after the 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 plant worker after he gets killed in the hit and run, and like where their relationship goes after that, I really like. Yeah. But until then, I'm just yeah, I'm just kind of indifferent to their to their shtick. Yeah, that's fair. I don't know for whatever reason I enjoyed it. I just maybe sure. it's just, that's just a, that's a you're, that's a trope not, I enjoy. You know, you're, you're not um, wrong. I'm just saying, that, yeah. Right, and I think you know. I think it's it's funny because uh, almost for some of the reasons that you don't like it, I do like it. Like, you know, I do enjoy the fact that Al has to kind of push him into it um, a little bit. Uh, I think you know. I mean, I think that that one could easily make the argument that because Sam's just been headbutted. Uh, by the Fuhrer, as he puts it, yeah. um, that he's you know he's a little out of sorts off his game. So maybe who knows? Maybe that's playing uh, some sort of effect with uh, uh, you know him not giving it right back to her and needing needing Al to to step in and help him out. Uh, I don't know, uh, but I, I you know I definitely agree with you that the that the the turn the relationship takes after they um, come upon uh, the hit and run scene um, sure. is is really great, and and the conversation they have, which I, I want to talk a little bit more about when we get there. Um, is fantastic, and I love Sam's uh, uh, response to her when she asks, you know, why do you, why did you do it, or how did you get into this? Um, so, in addition to uh, Delane Matthews, we've also got Alan Oppenheimer as uh, Earl Skinner, who is, of course, the uh, editor in chief, if you will, <clears throat> the boss. Um, and he, again, just you know, uh, resume a mile long uh, on IMDb. Uh, I think that the two things worth pointing out here uh, are that he was the original Dr. Rudy Wells on the Six Million Dollar Man before Martin E. Brooks took over. Um, most people would recognize Martin Brooks as Rudy Wells, but it was Alan Oppenheimer that actually originated the role uh, in the original television films and in the, the first season, um, which was truncated compared to the other seasons. Uh, and of course, the one thing that any child of the 80s would certainly recognize him for, that's nothing to do with his face and all to do with his voice this gentleman was the voice of Skeletor on He-Man in the Masters of the Universe oh my god he was yeah and he has a ton of voice acting credits and the I mean right up until today guy's still working he's almost 90 years old and he is still working to this day he actually voiced Skeletor three years ago uh, in a short film um, and, and has continued to do so for a number of years. Uh, he was also in Toy Story 4, um, and, and, and again, just, a, I mean, a, a huge list of credits in both uh, voiceover work and film and television. Um, actually uh, played two characters in The Practice, um, which I know we've talked about a little bit oh, yeah. before on the show in, in relation to Boston Legal, but, um, and, and of course, uh, you know, we wouldn't be a good sci-fi podcast if we didn't mention that he also uh, has some Star Trek connections oh, with sure. Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, but yeah, a career that has spanned, um, I mean, let's see, started in 1963, so 56 years um, uh, worth of credits. So definitely a guy that you might recognize, if not his face, then his voice. Um, and then, one, uh, oh, I'm sorry. We yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Another, no, so uh, one thing, uh, speaking of the voice of Skeletor, um, if you or any of our listeners, if you have not discovered this page, they're, they're not publishing anymore. They stopped publishing about four or five years ago. But go check out the Facebook page, Skeletor is Love. <laughs> uh, it, it's someone 
uh, it was a she. She took uh, like like screen captures of Skeletor from the original Masters of the Universe cartoon, and she put uh, affirmations over the top of them. Oh man! And there, it's just like you just read those in Skeletor's voice, and they are amazing. Um, so go check that out. Also, I didn't realize. Uh, so Alan was in. Westworld, which was a Yul Brenner 1973 movie, and yeah. apparently that's what the HBO series is based on, or, yeah. or or off of that. And I had no idea. Oh, really? Yeah, not a clue. Uh, yeah, it's funny because if I'm not mistaken, uh, the television or the, the the film was actually based on a concept uh, short story novel, something that, uh, by Michael Crichton. Um, who, of course, is also known for Jurassic Park and Rising Sun, etc. Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, so Alan, obviously, uh, lots of credits, just a Hollywood stalwart, to say the least. And then, of course, another guy who's been around for a very long time um, and, and is certainly recognizable to any sci-fi genre fans is Jerry Harden, um, who plays uh, Ed Saxton, the, the evil chemical weapons manufacturer. Um, and I think most people would recognize him, of course, for playing Deep Throat in the X-Files. Um, which, I, you know, I, I don't think there's any understating his importance as an actor, as a character, etc., to, to the evolution of that show, in spite of the fact that the character is, you know, is bumped off fairly, fairly early. Um, but just, uh, an excellent, excellent character, great actor, and, and he's, again, been around for a long time, done... Uh, uh, tons of film and television going all the way back, uh, believe it or not, to 1958. Wow. Uh, he was in the film Thunder Road, which is a, a great Robert Mitchum flick. Um, Robert Mitchum. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, just a, a you know, quality, quality talent. Still around, still, you know, still working. Um, I think his, his most recent credit uh, would actually come... There's, he's got something in post-production right now. He's playing Mark Twain, actually, in a television movie called At the End of the Santa Fe Trail. Imagine that. See, because immediately, the minute he popped on screen, even though when he played this when he played this character, he was under a ton of makeup, I instantly recognized him as playing... He's credited as Samuel Clemens, not Mark Twain, uh, but playing Mark Twain in the two-part Next Generation episode. Yeah. Time Zero. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Which is actually funny enough. Um, was not his first go around on Star Trek: Next Generation because he was in an episode, I think, in the first or second season as well. Um, so yeah, uh, first or second season, we we almost don't count that. Well, yeah, <laughs> for, yeah that's, for, that's actually very that's very true. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, but anyway, we'll we'll talk a couple about a couple more you know guest actors here when we get to them. But let's uh, let's dive in. Uh, we've got a longer leap in as as we generally do with with most episodes. There's a little bit more pushing and shoving. Um, nothing of substance really, but uh, there's a little bit more pushing and shoving before Sam gets the headbutt. Um, and uh, once we come back from the credits. Uh, as Sam has to do the outro for the show, a couple of things stood out. One, one of the topics in an upcoming episode, Sunday School Teachers for Marijuana, which I just loved. That jumped out at me, yes. Uh, and as he talks about the, um, you know, the bikini models, nude models, whatever, 
uh, you hear the biker dude that had headbutted him. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I'll watch that one. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm there for that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I just kind of love how, like, and, and, and I'm sure Scott had to have encouraged this, uh, that, th- that there's life happening. You know what I mean? Like, kind of off screen. Like, sure. we're not seeing this stuff at all. But that uh, that as these guys are getting kind of carted off after the headbutt and all that jazz, that they're still in the scene, which I really, which I really loved. Yeah, that was it. Was yeah, good quality textbook quantum leap opening first yeah. scene. And, and and I think that continues on with a disoriented Sam, you know, as mm-hmm. he goes uh, uh, through the, the newsroom and you know is uh, uh, maybe mildly concussed. Uh, Al shows up. Fairly early, yeah. Um, you know, which is not always the case, um, but we get we get Al early on, and um, he kind of helps Sam navigate the waters a bit, lets him know who he is. Uh, I think this is when we get our first mention of uh, Geraldo. Mm-hmm. And so let's. What? I said this to you before off mic. I just want to say it again. Do we have to? Let's uh, <laughs> let, let, let's just hit the highlights. Here's here's yeah, let's do it. here's my favorite tidbit of Geraldo Rivera. That's not his real name. <laughs> he is not Hispanic. He is Caucasian, as you and me. Do you know why his name is Geraldo Rivera? I don't. When he was coming up through the ranks, uh, young news reporter trying to break into the business. Uh, It it was at a time particularly where uh, they were trying to find more diversity than just straight up white guys. Mm -hmm. And somehow he discovered that if he grew a mustache, he looked Hispanic. And uh, I'm not even bothered looking up what his real name is. So he grew a mustache. He changed his name to Geraldo Rivera. And all of a sudden he was a... uh, non-white news anchor that networks were looking for at the time. That, so says, that says everything about his integrity that you need to know. Yeah, right. Here's something interesting, actually, though. I think it is worth noting here that uh, his real name is Gerald, uh, Gerald Michael Riviera. The funny thing about that is, is apparently... The extra I in there was added by mistake on his birth certificate, and his last name really actually is Rivera, because his dad, his name is Cruz Allen Rivera, uh, who was uh, a Puerto Rican Catholic descent. Okay. But his mother was of Russian Jewish descent. He was raised mostly Jewish, had a bar mitzvah, all that jazz. So he was certainly raised... uh, uh, you know, in that in that world, if you will. But yeah, he did. But you're right. He did indeed change the name. He didn't like his name being Gerald. Um, he thought that uh, Geraldo, he wanted something more identifiably Latin, uh, Latino. So he, he did that. Uh, interesting to note also that in the early stages of his career, you know, he did break into the business um, uh, in, in a more serious manner. One of the, you know his early stories in 1972 uh, won a Peabody Award. Um, it was a report on the neglect and abuse of patients with intellectual disabilities at Staten Island um, and uh, uh, the Willowbrook State School. 
So he, he started to appear on programs doing kind of investigative journalism like that. It didn't last long. Uh, and of course, then he started to slowly but surely um, tackle all sorts of controversial That's topics. Hilarious. I, I should say, I, I misspoke earlier when I said Hispanic. Uh, that is, your, yeah, you said Latino, and yeah. Hispanic and Latino are not the same thing. Right. They're often used interchangeably, but that's wrong. So, yeah. yes, I wanted to correct myself there. Uh, sorry for that flub, but yes. Uh, but yes, he goes into uh, basically what he's being made fun for <laughs> of in this episode. And, and Chris Rupenthal has flat out said that that's, that's what they were doing. Yeah. They, they weren't hiding it. You know, it's interesting oh. because I... I, I I don't know for certain, um, but I cannot necessarily find, uh, not that the episode makes direct reference, except for Al, to Geraldo, um, but it seems that most of his more sensationalistic stories didn't start until the Mm mid-80s, so this episode kind of predates a lot of the more sensational stuff that he did, including the Al Capone vault, which I know you want to talk about. And, and uh, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I feel like posterity. We do have to talk about it, right? But I don't. Well, because there talk are two. There are two. There are two things that happen in the course of this episode that are direct references to things that happened to Geraldo. One is, of course, getting headbutted by who appears to be, although he's never identified as such. In fact, he's more alluded to be some sort of, you know, cult worshiper. Uh, but certainly appears to be some sort of white supremacist, and, and Geraldo was indeed punched by uh, a white supremacist on his television program at one point. Um, and then, of course, take us to the story of Al Capone's vault. Uh, I'm just going to hit the highlights. Uh, so, yeah, basically there was... Uh, this, was a, this was a live broadcast, April 21st, 1986. Um it was uh, a hotel in Chicago where he promised that they, they had found some vault and they were potentially there were going to be some hidden great riches in there or maybe some dead bodies. They had a medical examiner uh, on hand in case any bodies were found. They had someone, they had agents from the IRS ready to collect any money that was found in the vault. Uh, and then when the vault was finally opened, uh, the only thing that they found were dirt and some uh, empty bottles, including one Ribera claimed was for moonshine bathtub gin. Um, there were several attempts to dig further into the vault. Um, and then finally, Geraldo admitted defeat to voice his disappointment, apologized uh, to the uh, excavation crew for their efforts. And that was that. Uh, when he was recounting this uh, 30 years later on the Fox News channel, he uh, admitted that as soon as they went off the air, he went across the street and got tequila drunk. <laughs> uh, but then by five years later in his autobiography, exposing himself or exposing myself, um, he, he soon realized that this was not the end of his career, but the beginning of it. Yeah. For what it is worth. Yeah. Yeah, and now he's just another dirtbag talking head on Fox News for yeah. what it's worth. So, 
Yep. Yeah. Yep. But at the time, you know, he was mostly just someone that you either loved to hate, rolled your eyes at, or tuned in and watched with bated breath as he took us down the garbage chute of daytime television. <laughs> yep. Uh, so there you go. Now we have officially talked about Geraldo Rivera. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're going to get to do this later with somebody else, but we'll get there. Um, So at this point, um, uh, you know, Sam uh, meets Janie and they have their their exchange and and Al helps to kind of punch things up, as we mentioned earlier. Um, And part of of the exchange between the two of them as they egg each other on is that she thinks that he can't cover a serious news story. Um, And so they make a bet and uh, they take a phone call. And they're off to the races. And when they get there to interview this character, he starts telling them as he waves a shotgun in their face that he saw aliens. Red Norton. Yeah. That's it. And it, it, it physically, he looks like a good mix between Red Skelton and Ed Norton from The Honeymooners. <laughs> yes. So, as played by Dennis Fimple. Mm-hmm. You know, character actor. Even though I hate that word, uh, he um, yeah, he he'd been around for a long time before his passing. Um, you know, dating back to the late '60s, uh, lots of television and film. Uh, but yeah, he he you know fits the role so perfectly here, and I think that the result of the conversation that he has with the two of them uh, really does it, it help to add a little bit to the tension because the interesting part is is that he's telling them a story that fits perfectly on Roberto's show while at the same time giving them just enough to, to kind of follow the breadcrumbs elsewhere and so it's clear that Janie doesn't think that he's going to be able to you know to actually come up with a serious news story that it's going to be all about the fluff of like I saw aliens killing sheep in my backyard yeah but it's uh, you can't help but uh, at, towards the end of that scene, I think um, uh, Janie has already walked away, and Sam is just standing there, and then he says like, "I know I was drinking, but I saw what I saw." Yeah, and it's just oh, the way he said it. Yeah, it's you can't help but feel a little bit sympathetic for him. You know, this is also uh, where we get. Uh, I believe it is. is this yeah, this is where we get uh, a wonderful little piece of mythology, which yeah. is something we haven't really had in a while. Not um, in quite a bit. Al points off into the distance and says about 30 miles that way. Uh, that's where Project Quantum Leap is going to be built. And he says definitively in seven years. In seven years, 1989. So we know, yeah, that Project Quantum Leap gets built in 1989. Yeah. And it's uh, one that, because when you think about it, it's like they start building it in 1989. Sam first sleeps in 1995. Like, there was six years of them just building stuff up and getting ready. Yeah. And then the leaping is just like the the second part of it. Right. That's, uh, you know, they, they talk about that in the novel Prelude. And I, I, I almost think, uh, I, I don't know, like looking off the top of my head, I think that scene may be cut in reruns. Yes, it is. Yep. That's a shame. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. Um, yeah, Matt Dale's book, Beyond the Mirror Image, The Observer's Guide to Quantum Leap. Um, <laughs> he does indeed uh, mention that that gets cut, uh, unfortunately, and syndicated 
uh, re-airings. And, and I agree, yeah, it is too bad, because it's one of those things that, you know, by today's television standards, with how serialized everything tends to be, you know, it's just this wonderful tidbit that, that would not be thrown away uh, and left on the cutting room floor. So, um... Thank goodness for DVD and streaming services. Absolutely, yeah. Well, we should also uh, also mention at this point, uh, so Roberto and Janie have made a $50 bet that right. Roberto can't do a serious story. Uh, and it's also important to note that uh, Janie is slumming it in Destiny, New Mexico because of her asthma, because, because of whether she could not continue living in Chicago. That's right. So the and, weather here was too much. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, and so that that comes back into play. Yes, it does. Later um, on. And so, uh, where do we go from there, Dennis? Uh, where do we go from there? We get to the we get to the plant pretty soon because they go to. Uh, uh, it's more they they don't go to their. It's more like a fluff, like public relations thing, isn't it? That, yeah. That they end up at the plant. Yeah. Uh, and that's where they first meet uh, Rick, Rick Upfield, one of the one of the plant workers with the damaged hand. Uh, yeah. He will play a victim later on. He uh, is uh, played by Marcus Giamatti. If you recognize that last name, it's because he is Paul Giamatti's older brother. That's right. And in a neat little piece of trivia here that everyone can use to wow their friends... He would go on to co-star, or had already co-starred with... Had already oh, co-starred with him. Now the dates are getting mixed up here. Had already co-starred with Mr. Scott Bakula in a little film called Necessary Sir, As Sergi Fumbolino Wilkins. Oh, <laughs> yes. And he was also in another uh, Rob Schneider film, because Rob Schneider has a bit role in Necessary Roughness before he really blown up and become Rob Schneider, for, yeah. for whatever that is worth. Um he was also in The Chosen One with Rob Snyder. In That's right. Two, and oh, course, two, 2010. Oh, apparently Rob Snyder's still doing stuff. Okay. God, God bless you. God bless you, Rob Schneider. Uh, he was also uh, a regular on uh, the television show Judging Amy, um, playing Peter Gray. Uh, I don't know enough about the show to determine exactly what his relation was to the main character, other than that I know that the main character's name is Amy Gray. So, could be brother, husband, cousin, I don't really know. All I know is is that he was uh, in that show uh, with her, and uh, yeah, there you have it. But he was in uh, 138 episodes, so yeah, he was a regular for the whole run of the show. Okay, yeah, I mean, yeah it seems like he's, he's, uh, he's working a lot there. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, they get enough. Uh, they get enough going on at the plant that they that, that there's something there's something going on there. Yeah, and, and, and his character in particular, you know, is obviously a big key to that because of the, the burn on his hand. Uh, yeah, because that's what Saxon wants us to think it is. And you know, let's just let's just give Marcus Giamatti some credit here because in a role that does not have a lot of dialogue or screen time while he's alive. Spoiler alert. Uh, he does a lot with it and, and creates a character that is, you know, sympathetic that, y- y- you know, before the, his demise at the hit and run, you can almost, you know, you, you think that this character is going to, I don't know, that he's going to help them, that he's going to be, you know, along the along for the ride. Um, yeah. And that's just not the case. Yeah. That, um, I mean, yeah, I was I was surprised when he turned up dead because I had forgotten that. Yeah. He, he gets dispatched pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, he does. You know, 
Hey, that's the way it goes in these shows, right? But that's the thing, yeah. Is this pretty soon where we find ourselves back at the at the studio with the episode with, uh, I know you want to talk about her. Dear with Dark, God. With Dark this was another, do we have to? Uh, yeah, this is. So we get back, and uh, he's got another episode, Roberto does, and it's about, uh, you know, these bikini-clad models and whether or not they're lack of clothing and desire to, to pose as pinups or whatever is demeaning to women and setting back, you know, feminism, blah de blah or whether or not it's empowering because they're making the choice to do it. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the guest to be the counterpoint to, you know, yay ra, yay ra, take your clothes off, is none other than Dr. Laura Schlesinger playing herself. Yeah. Is this the, uh, um, is this the first time in the show where we have a celebrity playing themselves? Other, than, well, other got, than other than Chubby Checker, I was just getting ready to say yeah, Chubby Checker. Um, yeah, I think so. I think that could be. I can't think of anyone else off the top of my head. I mean, yeah, fifth season, all bets are off. But uh, <laughs> um, right, I mean, we've had we've had some people you know appear via stock footage, like yeah. Warren Green and. Um, Disco Inferno and stuff, but yeah, sure. uh, I, I think that this is probably the first, like, in the flesh, if you will. Sure. Um, and this one is a lot more believable than Chubby Checker. Love Chubby, yeah. Ch- love Chubby Checker, but this one is actually a lot more believable. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, Doctor Laura, uh, bless her heart, as they say, bless her heart. Yeah. Yeah. She, you know, I just don't even, I, look, here's the thing. This woman thinks that homosexuality is a biological error. She has used racial slurs. I mean, I, I, whatever. The hell with her. I, I don't care. I don't care. No, 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 no. The best thing that ever came of her is the fact that she provided the fodder for the midterms episode of the West Wing in which President Bartlett eviscerates a, a you know, uh, what's, the, what's the name for it? Um, a stand-in, basically. A stand-in, yeah. We'll, we'll use that word for, for yeah. her, uh, the character of Dr. Jenna Jacobs. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, which is ironic, yeah. calling her a stand-in, because what draws uh, Bartlett's ire in that scene is the fact that she refuses to stand for him. <laughs> That's right. That's which, right. Which, which, lead, which leads to his line that in this White House, when the president stands, no one sits. Yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, something that, that is, you know, well known and something that um, uh, Aaron Sorkin has never denied uh, is that the, um, the monologue that, that President Bartlett, as played by Martin Sheen, has was actually based on an anonymous letter to Dr. Laura. Um, which was a you know a, an email uh, of the time that was going around because of Dr. Laura's comments about homosexuality and, and her racism, for lack of a better term. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think she's a garbage human being right up there with Geraldo. So hey, we got two garbage human beings hey, right there that are you know referenced in this episode. So to bring it back around, look, what uh, an interesting thing about this is. So she ends up by the end of the scene. Uh, she she dares Sam Roberto. Yeah. To, to do the rest of the episode in his boxers because of the argument that Sam is making. That's just because women are scanning the clad. They're not giving away any of their dignity. So, okay, well, if you believe that, you do it. Uh, it's interesting to know, uh, this is noted in Matt's book, that in the first draft of the script, 
during this moment, Al reminds Sam that he had just played Hamlet in the nude a couple yeah. of leaps ago, and Sam does not remember that. Yeah. And, of course, we're talking about the plays the thing. Right. Yeah, it, it, it is funny, yeah, that, that he, uh, he, you know, talks about how humiliating this is. Um, and, and like you said, it's, it's, you know, he's clearly forgotten about the fact that he was appearing nude not too long ago. Um, which is also, you know, that's the thing that's interesting about this episode. And I think, you know, obviously having a writer like Chris Rupenthal and having, of course, you know, your star being the director as well. Um, you, you get some really wonderful bits of continuity with the rest of the series, and the you know reinforcing the idea that Sam's memories get a little fuzzy in between leaps. That the Swiss cheesing is still a thing. That you know um, that even though it's not talked about and it's not mentioned, and 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 you know we're certainly applying sort of 2019 TV logic and standards to a 1992 episode of television, but it also helps to explain the fact that. He doesn't remember Donna. He doesn't remember a lot of this stuff. So it's, you know, it, it's just another cool little sort of Easter egg kind of thing in, in a way um, that unfortunately is not as explicit as it would have been had that scripted exchange, main, you know, remained. But, yeah. Um, but it's still there, and I think it's kind of neat little fodder for a Quantum Leap podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And then, um, is this shortly thereafter where, uh, where Rick, he contacts them? And That's right. He gives them a call. He says, meet me at the Blue Dolphin. Do you want to go to the Blue Dolphin? Yeah. I want to go to the Blue Dolphin. Let's go to the Blue Dolphin. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the Blue Dolphin line, it is a crack. There's, there's, there's kind of a hint of flirtiness between Roberto and Janie. Yeah. A little bit. Uh, which we come around to a little bit at the end, but not too much. Uh, but of course, by the time they get uh, they get there, are, are they are they by the plant? Are they are they close to the blue dolphin? Was he crossing the street like on his way to the blue dolphin when he got hit, or was he leave, just leaving the plant? He was no. They're they're in the parking lot of the blue dolphin. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which is which is really cool. You know, one thing um, that would be easy to gloss over, uh, except for one particular instance that stands out a little bit later in the episode. Uh, is some of, you know, Scott's choices uh, as a director. And, and again, I think probably, you know, when you work so closely with someone for so long, which obviously the executive producer and, 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 you know, frequent writer for the television program, you know, Scott and Chris would have a good relationship. So the opportunity probably to kind of craft some of these scenes together, in particular knowing that they were on a budget, I think that this is a great example of that because the way that, you know, we've got kind of this crane shot uh, coming through, the, the parking lot and and immediately you know you're kind of like oh blue often they're going to meet there but almost right away the rug gets pulled out from underneath of you and you see the ambulance and you see the flashing lights yeah. and it's kind of like you know it's that wonderful sense of dramatic irony where you the viewer know you you just know without even having it explained to you or see it before the characters do yeah and and and, and then you know of course sam and jamie get there and we find out that Rick has been the victim of a hit and run. Yeah. Uh, and what I love about, uh, and, and it's peppered throughout the, the episode, but I feel like this is one of the first good instances. Like, the, the music is so 80s-tastic. It is so 1980s TV movie of the week. Yeah. Or any or, or, or a Lifetime made-for-TV movie of any era. It's just got that, yeah. It's it, it's got that cheese to it, which I enjoy. You know, it's funny you mention that. I, I want to throw this out here real quick. That is it just me, or does the Roberto theme song sound a little bit like they were riffing on the Quantum Leap theme music? Oh God! Now, now that you say that, I think they were a little bit. Right? Yeah. Uh, 
but you're right about the music in general. It is like that. Um, you know, as a result of this scene, two big things happen. One, they of course, they find the key card, Rick's yeah. key card. The other thing that is, you know, not necessarily out of the ordinary, but for some reason it just really, it was arresting to me as a viewer, is that Sam just kicks it into high gear as far as like, all right, we're going to do this. We're, we're figuring this out. We've got to do it now. We've got to go now. we got to, you know, he, he really all of a sudden just hurdles sort of the entire plot forward. And it's a wonderful example of Sam happening to the episode instead of the episode happening to Sam. I see that, but also at the same moment, it occurred to me uh, this scene could have worked just as well and maybe better if they had flip-flopped those lines and instead Sam kind of naively says, we need to give this to the police and Janie had been the one who said, no, you dumb hack. <laughs> this, is a, this is something that we can use and do some investigative journalism. You know, if this were season one or two, I would absolutely agree with you. But okay. being late season four, I, I think, no, I think Sam's, Sam should be the gas here. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. But, uh, but, but, I, but I, I totally get your point, and, and, and I do agree that that would be interesting. Um, one of the cool things that ends up happening from this, though, is that we get a wonderful conversation... Um, between Sam and Janie back at the news station as they're sort of kind of downloading all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it leads to... I mean, one of my favorite Sam moments in a while, to be completely honest with you, um, you know, when she basically asks, how'd you get into this? And, of course, that's Janie asking Roberto. Yeah. And instead of Sam replying as Roberto, Sam replies as Sam. Yeah. And he says, I got into this by accident. You know, I, I figured I wanted to... You know, now all of a sudden I'm champion for the underdog everywhere. You know that sort of thing. It's just, it's a really, you know, great moment for him, mm -hmm. and I, and I think that uh, you know Scott plays it perfectly. Um, it's just this wonderful way of using his truth as a part of the Leapy's truth, um, and I think for someone who's so invested in the character, it's just this. It's kind of an emotional moment, mm -hmm. and it's not played that way. Sure, it's not. But but it but there's this. I mean, they could have, they, they could have played up the cheese factor. They could have <laughs> they they could have played the home theme. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, funny enough, and you mentioned this earlier, so all credit goes to you, and I'll let you actually talk about it. Would have fit, honestly, if if they would have gone the route of what was in the original script. Uh, yeah. So in uh, yeah, in, in Matt's book, he points out that in the original script during this scene, uh, Sam talks about how his father sold the farm six months before he died. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Which yeah, you know, again, is just another wonderful callback, um, and, and and I think it's it's in a way it's too bad that that isn't in there. At the same time, it's interesting to know that it could have been. Um, I don't miss, I don't miss it too much. I know, but I mean, it also, and I'm just now thinking this popping off the top of my head, it really informs, like, if Sam's dad died of a heart attack, and if it just happened six months after he sold the farm, it just kind of plays in that idea of, like, once you don't have the thing that you live for. Yeah. You know, you, sometimes you just kind of choose to go. Right. In your own way. Um, but yeah, 
yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a nice. I'm gonna. It's one of those things that I'm gonna take it away in, in my head canon. I'm gonna put it in there, and the right. I'm, I'm gonna put it in there in the episode now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. Um, so now uh, now we're going back to the plant, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah we go back to the plant. Um, they uh, they con their way in basically with uh, Sam making up this story about Jamie's missing earring. This is my one gripe with the episode. Yeah. Is that is that the yeah? But that's the story that they con their way in. It's it's almost like the guy knows that they're lying and he lets them in anyway. You know, I think so. Um, we talked about this off mic. I I really do like this episode quite a bit. I think that perhaps the first half or so, maybe a little bit more than the first half, is is pretty strong in a lot of respects. It's a great mix of different things uh, that are great about Quantum Leap. There are some things that once we get to this point that just seem to be happening because we've got 45 minutes, we got to get somewhere. We and, and this is definitely one of them. And I don't want to be as harsh as our friend over at the MacGyver Project. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because he, like, just tears this thing up. Oh my gosh. He he talks about like how terrible the last half of the episode is. The entire second half of the episode is a complete disaster. Um, Oh my gosh. The access that everyone has to the plant, etc., etc., all this. And he (laughs) says in his final analysis, as you can tell, I was not a fan of this one. It was a goofy plot and a slog to get through, and there was little in the way of highlights. Sorry, Scott. He ranks it fourth from the bottom of all episodes he had reviewed up to that point. You know, I mean, yes. <laughs> it does, like, how they're able to get back into the plant. How they, I mean, first off, how they're, roam, how they're able to roam around the plant to the begin with. And then how they're able to get back into the plant to fall on their face. Right. Now, I yes. will argue, I will argue, actually, that the second half of that, though, makes a lot of sense to me. Because if you're Ed Saxton, who's this, you know, mastermind chemical weapons manufacturer or whatever, think about it from his point of view. I have the opportunity to bring these people that are breathing down my neck, who have clearly seen things they shouldn't see, into my plant and sucker them in, in much like Geraldo did with Al Capone's fault, sure. to find a big nothing yeah. on live television. End of story, case closed, these guys are tabloid journalists, screw them, I'm going to go make another million dollars for killing poor kids in the Middle East with mustard gas. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Fair enough. Yes. But, Um, yeah, anyway. (laughs) uh, But it it is worth noting, uh, so we do get a little bit of uh, a neat shot as they are driving around the plant after they find the thing, after they're making their way back out. Um, uh, In the original script... Al was just supposed to be sitting in the back seat of the little cart that they were on. Like they, 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 like they do with a lot of shots, where, where where Sam is driving somewhere, Al is just kind of positioned in the back seat, and I think you're just supposed to kind of accept that Al's not really sitting down; he's just positioned in the back seat of the car in such a way that he's going along with the vehicle. Um, so uh, Bakula had the. Uh, had the idea to have Al actually floating along aside the golf cart. And so, yeah, yeah, they they did some rearranging there to make that happen. Yeah, and that was definitely one of the other things I wanted to talk about because it's, you know, it is is a really cool moment. Um, I think that, you know, when you go into, like, um, just 
cool Al moments. We've had a couple recently, you know, I mean, even in Ghost Ship when he's, like, outside the plane and he walks in, and, you know, there's some, some neat stuff that they've done with Al recently, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty cool. Um, I love his, I, I love every one of his outfits in this episode. For sure. And I also love Sam's red suit jacket. Yes. In the one scene. Mwah. Mwah. Tried to, yeah. Mwah. Yeah. My, there you go, my, Jean-Pierre. My compliments <laughs> to Jean-Pierre. Um... Yeah, uh, so after this, uh, of course, they find the uh, the dirt, if you will, and they make their way out just barely. Uh, it's kind of convenient that they let them go because at this point, you know, they are kind of looking for them. Yeah. Um, but you know, they get out. And, what's the what's, uh, the what's the name of the what's the name of the the main henchman? You know, I I cannot I, cannot I can't for the remember life his name, and I'm looking on IMDb and. Uh, it's either Michael Heitzman, Tim, or or Victor Talmage, who's foreman, or Hank. Uh, I, yeah. fe- I feel like it was Tim, because he, he ends up playing a pretty significant part in the latter half of the episode. He does, that's right. And, uh, and he, he's um, got these just, oh, these creepy eyes. You just know he's bad yeah. news. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, he's... Um yeah, he's, he, you know, the wonderful thing is, is like he starts off as like kind of this doofus, <laughs> you know, letting them in and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of playing like, you know, cool and everything. And then, yeah, it becomes very menacing. And in fact, is basically, you know, at the direction, of course, of Saxton, he is the cause of Janie's, what we find out would be her murder. Yeah. Um, because the thing that we failed to mention here, <laughs> Jesus, some quantum leap co-hosts we are. Uh, is that one of the things that Sam is there to do is to stop Janie from dying. Hey, if you're listening to this, you've seen the episode. <laughs> you've you seen the episode. You know. uh, but, but, but yeah, but in the original history, she, she her, her car runs off the road, and in the changed history, she dies of an asthma attack. Right. Which they telegraph that a lot because she's having shortness of breath approximately every one and a half minutes throughout the episode. It, and she does end up using her inhaler earlier in the episode in front of Ed Saxton when they're doing the initial interview. Yeah. You know, kind of puff piece, like you were saying. So anyway, by this point, after they've escaped, um, you know, they're, they're, they're very adamant about getting there and doing the special, the expose. We get our Geraldo Al Capone vault moment as they get ready to go into the closet. There's no longer a slot for a key card there. Oh, speaking of which, back to the key card real quick. We get a very cool other piece of mythology, which Al lets Sam know that they used key cards early on at Project Quantum Leap before they had implanted, yeah, um, like scanners or whatever put into their to their hands, yeah, um, which was which was kind of cool cool bit there. Um, but now instead of that door having a key card, it's got a regular lock on it. They open it and it's just a utility closet. Yeah, nothing there. I do remember. I, I don't. Uh, I don't think as a kid, like, I realized, like, how much of this was a play on Geraldo's failed vault thing in real life. I do remember uh, being intrigued and kind of, uh, yeah, being intrigued is probably the right word by when they go back, there's a fake closet that's been set up in place. I do think that that was a neat moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 12-year-old me was impressed. Right. <laughs> and the other thing that's kind of cool, too, um, is that Al, you know, walks through the wall to examine the other side. And, of course, you can see that it's like, you know, well, they've got six feet of dirt piled up here. But, yeah, it's still there. Everything's all here. Um, but, of course, there's nothing they can do. They get shut down. Um, 
you know, uh, uh, Alan Oppenheimer's character, uh, Earl Skinner, the, you know, the, the head guy is like, hey, you know, cut him off, cut him off, cut him off. And uh, at that point, you know, they get cut off. They go back to the newsroom very dejected. They're trying to figure out what in the world they could possibly do. Um, and this is when they start uh, hacking into the system, basically. Yeah. Um, and, of course, they get found out. Yeah. Um, after Sam pulls some, some magic with Ziggy mm-hmm. uh, getting, uh, getting uh, into the system, they do get found out. And it's at this point that Saxton tells, uh, who we believe is Tim, uh, to you know take the inhaler basically and kill uh, yeah. Janie. Well, he doesn't say that. He's just like, we got it. I love this moment because like you, you kind of see like the, the the evilness of Saxton. He's like, no, like for one, Tim is ready to kill them both, and he's like, no, just take out the reporter. Like he basically Roberto is just a hack. You kill her off, he'll learn. We'll throw some money at him. He'll go away. You kill her. She's the dangerous one. Right. And then he's like, you got to be more. He said, basically says, you got to be more creative. And you see him thinking, because like he's standing in the foreground, Tim is standing in the background. And he's thinking, he's thinking, and then he gets a smile on his face. And he knows how it's going to happen, but we don't quite know yet. Uh, And then, then we cut back. Uh, Sam is working on the computer. Janie has fallen asleep, and this we see Tim uh, replace the inhaler. And this is another. This is another uh, a, a little uh, remnant of every uh, uh, murder that happens in like any kind of piece of 1980s television. The leather gloves. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is it is a nice bit of cheese, and it, and it is one of the things that draws some criticism not only on the MacGyver Project but on uh, Al's Place uh, message boards about the fact that he replaces the inhaler like right behind Sam as Sam is like typing away on the computer. Um, you know, and it's 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 one of those things where it's like, man, that guy's that guy's a ninja. He's walking he against is, the I mean, wind. It's like, like like how how did he break? Well, I mean he. They they know that they're probably at the news office because they caught them hacking into the computer, and so Sam yeah. is trying to rehack back in, and right. so I can buy that. So to me, what is going on in that scene is that off camera between Sam and Al, they figure out between Sam and Al and Janie even like they well between Sam and Al because they know she's going to die by asthma attack. Right. They they figure out what's happening, and so I think what we don't see off camera it's because they're saving the twist for us the viewer at the end i think sam knows when tim comes in i think al is in the room and, uh, and i think al is in the room and i was like okay he's coming he's coming everyone be quiet janie janie's pretending to be asleep because they, they because because they know he's he's not going to kill him he's not going to hurt him right then they know he's going to he, he's going to kill her with the inhaler so sam is pretending not to hear him Janie's pretending to be asleep. Al is standing somewhere off camera, giving them a heads up, and that's how they do it. That is, uh, you know, I bravo. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. No, seriously, I love that, and I did not. And for whatever reason, you know, in in, in twenty plus years, <laughs> I never, I never thought of it that way. Uh, but that makes perfect sense, and and I really like that. It's a, you know, it's a wonderful. It plays into the fact that they've been suckering them in the whole time, and I wouldn't be a damn bit surprised if that's exactly what 
you know, Chris and Scott wanted from this if it wasn't, you know, if that wasn't kind of the intent all along, but obviously not wanting to tip their hand early and ruin the twist, you know, they, they, they play it cool like this. But, yeah, that makes so much sense, and I, I, I really like that a lot. Yeah, I mean, otherwise, it's, it's, just, a, it's just a horrible scene. <laughs> You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so we cut to uh, Sam calling uh, Saxton and playing at full tilt. How'd you do it? Yeah. How'd you and kill it? What a great, like, it's still 80s cheese, like we've been oh, talking yeah. about. Like, it's still got some of that element to it. But still, what a great scene. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just a great phone call. And I love, I love the kicker at the end. When when Sam like suckers him into coming on the show and to write him a check for a hundred thousand yeah. dollars, and the fact that like Saxton is like ah, I knew you, I knew I, I had knew your it, number, yeah. like ah, oh. yeah. I don't I don't think when I was a kid like when when he's talking about the scholarship, I don't think I fully appreciated the like the wink wink of scholarship. I'll make it out to you. I'll let you handle it however you see fit. Yeah, I never caught when I was a kid like he was, yeah, wink, wink, paying off Roberto. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, it's funny because uh, for whatever reason, I didn't I didn't end up getting to watch this on the Blu-rays, and uh, my stream, for whatever reason, kind of died. Um, and, uh, and you I should get that checked out. We're getting that age. Yeah, you know. give him a rim shot. Um, <laughs> Dad jokes are built in. So uh, well, I you know, I'm, I'm hitting forty, so it's time to start visiting the proctologist. So yes, that's right. Rim, rim, rim shot. Here we go. Anyway, you were saying. Uh, so, <laughs> so I had to rewind this seat a couple of times okay. because okay. it kept kind of getting choppy or whatever. So I actually literally saw that particular moment like three times in a row just because <laughs> of the way that it was getting choppy. So I got to I got to get quick succession of of, of uh, Saxon paying Roberto off. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway. We, you know, fast forward here to uh, the next day, and now Saxon is coming on Roberto's show. Um, Sam, of course, you know, plays it up to the hilt about, uh, you know, a, a reporter making a mistake, etc., all this sort of stuff. He's very contrite. He's also very sad. He announces the death of Janie. Here's the interesting thing. Everyone in the room, including old Ed Skinner, our, our editor-in-chief guy, like, Store brand Lou Grant. <laughs> they, right, yes. But they are all, like, so crestfallen, so sad. Some of them are shocked. Like, some people don't seem to know that she's dead. Uh-huh. And they're like, Whoa, oh, my God, she died? Oh, no. So there's this Paul that's hanging over everything. He starts in on, on Saxton and everything. Eventually pulls out the inhaler. Suckers him in by spraying the inhaler in his face. He's like, no, don't worry, this is just a regular inhaler. Of yeah. course, it's at that point the door is open, and here well, comes Janie and the cop. Actually, Janie walks in before. Oh, okay, okay. Janie walks oh. in. That's how Saxon knows that the gig is up, and then he sprays it into his face. That's right. I Yeah, I flipped it. It's okay. Uh, but, but when she walks in with the cops, <clears throat> oh, my God. Like, th- everyone in the room is like, oh, she's alive, including Skinner. Like, everyone who works at the station, it's like, Jesus. Like, I get that you guys wanted to sucker him in, but you you really didn't let anyone in on the ju- You let all of these people think she was dead? <laughs> but plausible deniability. Hey, man, commitment to the bit. I appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, the jig is up, and... Uh, 
So yeah, everything is going to turn out. Uh, Janie actually walks up and serves the search warrant. Uh, That's right. Yeah, which is I find a little bit unbelievable, but hey, you know um, that that Janie's the one who serves the warrant. But anyway, it's it's nice. It's dramatic. Saxon storms off. The the police follow him, and in the little wrap up that Al gives us, everything's everything's going to turn out okay. Hey, okay. And we get that great bit as Sam's talking about the uh, on tomorrow's episode. Yes. Uh, so we're talking about this off mic. I don't know if I forgot about this joke or I've never gotten the joke. But the last thing he says is like, oh, and my personal story of how I was once uh, or how I was kidnapped by aliens and kept in an all white room. I didn't get the joke until they cut to Al and him and Al kind of share a look. And I'm yeah. like, oh, you clever bastards. They're talking about the waiting room. Yeah. Yeah, good, good, good stuff. Good stuff. It's you know, it's just like I said, it's little bits like that throughout this episode that I, I feel like kind of do end up elevating the episode a bit. It's not you know, again, it's not a great episode by any stretch. It's it's I don't think I would necessarily say it's one of my favorites of season four. It's probably towards the you know the bottom of the top half of episodes uh, of the season, uh, maybe a little higher than that, but. Uh, it's just got some really great texture. It's got some excellent direction by Scott Bakula. It's, you know, overall, it, you know, it's got a good plot. It speeds by. Um, and, yeah, we get our little wrap-up. We get Sam talking to Janie here, offering to buy her a bottle of champagne. Um, and then we get the leap out, which is worth noting here that in the original airing, it was actually a um, leap out into Raped. Mm-hmm a rerun of Raped, and that uh, the next episode, of course, which has been restored in the Leap Out for streaming and on the Blu-rays and DVDs, is uh, into the next episode, which, of course, is It's a Wonderful Leap. Yes. Yes. Oh, we have so much to talk about in that episode. Dear God. (laughs) If you thought I said, do we have to in this one. Um, So anyway. You know, we get to talk about a very clever bit that Stephen Colbert did. Yep. On on the Colbert show with Scott Bakula, who was a good sport and came back and reprised Sam. So yeah. Which is you know, which is lovely that we get to talk about something like that for awful, horrible reasons. S- terrifying reasons, but it's wonderful because it reminds us that as we sit here doing this podcast about our favorite show, that, you know, Quantum Leap, in its time on the air, did make an indelible mark on pop culture. Oh, yeah. That there are, that there are a, a lot of people out there that have heard of the show, that know the show, have seen an episode here or there or, or whatnot, but people who've never seen the show still are aware of the show in one fashion or another, um, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the Leap Out, he's driving a cab, he's looking around, playing with his glasses, trying to figure out where, when he is, and he ends up hitting somebody. I mean, <laughs> and, and let me just say... The, the way he hits her, like, he runs her over. Like, the car's, like, oh, up and over, and, like, man. The car's up and over, and actually, like, part of the, like, part of the car, like, bumper, like, comes loose a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be fun to talk about. Uh, so some, uh, uh, well, let's wrap this up, and I'll talk about some odds and ends and other stuff. Uh, so you thought this is this was a solid, not one of your favorite episodes. I've... Like I said, I uh, I think this episode had the benefit of kind of being like uh, not very great in my memory, and so it was a pleasant surprise. 
I get that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed this episode more than the, than I have the last couple ones. Yeah. Yeah, I, um... I, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. It, it's interesting because I, I can't necessarily say I disagree with that. But I, I think, I, you know, I'd probably put it above Song for the Soul. Um, and it might edge out, you know, Last Gunfighter ever so slightly. There's some stuff I really enjoyed about Last Gunfighter, actually. But I think I'd put it above Last Gunfighter. Um, I think, I, yeah, I agree with you. I'd put it above Ghost Ship as well. So, I, yeah, you're, you're right. You're right. When you're right, you're right. You're right. I, I mean, Ghost Ship it has the uh, the allure of the Bermuda Triangle. Right. But I, this one was just... Yeah, I, I liked all the, the, the cheesy twists and turns in the latter half of this episode versus them throwing crap out of an airplane at the end of Ghost Ship. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and one thing I will say is that... I feel, for no particular reason other than that, I just I, 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 I'm just kind of making this supposition right now that season four overall, in spite of some weaker episodes, you know, at times, has actually I think held up probably better than season three overall. Mm. I may have to agree with that. I think season three has the stronger, like, home run episodes. Yeah. You know, obviously you've got Leap Home Part 1 and 2. Um, you've got Black and White on Fire. Um, but yeah, I mean... There are some other ones in there, sure, but for the most part, that's about all you get. Yeah. And, like... And season four has had some really solid episodes. I think that the consistency of season four is what ends up making it stand out over season three, in spite of season three having some, some big some not good episodes. episodes. Yeah. yeah. Tell us what you think, listeners. Please do. Which is more solid? We'll put a thing up. Which is more, yeah, three or four. Three or four. Uh, so anyway, so odds and ends. So, uh, and I'm sure after we wrap up the main episodes, we'll get into talking about uh, this, but the novels... Uh, I recently reread Double or Nothing. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. Short review, because we'll get into it deeper later on. Uh, it was a great concept. It had its moments. But, oh. Yeah. It, it's, uh, I like Verbena Beaks. I, yeah. I like how the waiting room is portrayed in the books better than I do the series. Because yeah. the the waiting room in the series is, is like it, it's like this weird blue room with just a big table in the middle of the room with a giant mirror in the middle, which makes no damn sense. Uh, whereas um, in the novels, the waiting room is a very clinical, timeless-looking hospital room where they actually do have the leapy like hooked up to you know. IVs and things and monitors and everything, which makes more sense. Um, yeah. I like Beaks, and I like how the waiting room is portrayed. Uh, I, I don't think this particular writer knew how to write Al at all. Mm. And it just... Yeah. Yeah. I You know, it's funny because I think that was the first one that I ever bought. Yeah. Uh, 
at B. Dalton Booksellers. No, oh, yeah. maybe I bought it at Walden's. I Walden's anyway. where I bought all mine, yeah. Um, and uh, I remember it being the first one that, that I bought. I Actually, my mom bought it for me, but... Um, I don't remember a whole lot about it, you know. It was one of those things, you know, I was always taking books to school with me. Yeah. While most kids were, you know, trying to catch up on homework or whatever, I was saying the hell with that and reading Quantum Leap novels. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I think that um, it'll be interesting to revisit the novels because uh, there are some that I've never read, there's some that I've never finished, and, and then there are, you know, the, the handful that I've... Uh, that I have read, and, and that was one of the, the first ones, but um, I don't, frankly, remember much about it. Yeah. Um, I, I was saying, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I know that the quality, you know, kind of varies pretty wildly between um, between books. You know, some are really good, some are meh, and some are not good at all. Yeah. There's, uh, what I do appreciate about the books, and we've talked about this before a lot on the podcast, is that a lot of the books break away from the series, and that they have Sam's mind leap. Yes. Instead of the body. And I think on TV it makes sense why they chose the body, but in the novel where you're not constrained by a budget and you can do more interesting things just on the written page, I think having Sam's mind leap is a much better choice. Yeah. Which is, well, why, which is why, I mean, the, the whole premise of this novel that we're talking about, Double or Nothing, Sam's mind is split in two and he leaps into adult twins. Yeah. So, yeah. Great premise. Not executed well. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I am absolutely lying. Uh, it wasn't double or nothing. It was too close for comfort. Oh, okay. Yeah. That was my first one, and that was the, the, the one that I read. I Double or nothing is one of the ones that I've never read before, but Got I know it. the premise, so yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that, that they, they do brilliantly set that up in the very first novel, which is, of course, the novel or Carney knowledge. Depending, yeah. Depending on, yeah, which side of the pond you're on, but... Um, uh, is that, yeah, it, almost immediately, like within the first chapter, it's set up that it's Sam's mind that leaps because, of course, his character has a physical impairment and uh, they, they talk about Sam kind of having to deal with that, yeah. which is really interesting. Well, I can't remember, uh, I think it may have been the second novel. Uh, I think it may have been in the preface to Too Close for Comfort, uh, the, the writer Ashton McConnell, who also wrote the novel or Carney Knowledge. She just flat acknowledges, like, yes, I realize the series said the body. I'm saying the mind, and her reasoning was is that the first season of the TV series, it was <laughs> kind of ambiguous. It was. And yeah. not well explained, so she was like, eh, I decided to to run with the ambiguity and, and go the other direction. Yeah, and she, you know, and, and to be fair, um, you know, she really kind of was the, you know, one of the driving forces behind the novels. She, she wrote the lion's share of them. She kind of helped come up with uh, you know some of the more bigger picture ideas that were explored within the context of the novels. Um, you know they, she didn't necessarily write like all the great ones, like Angels Unaware and um, uh, Pulitzer were written by another author, um, L. Elizabeth Storm. But um, she, you know, she did kind of early on sort of craft the uh, the direction. I feel like of the novels with with a lot of her decisions that uh, other authors you know definitely picked up on and, and, and went with. Um, yeah, uh, um, yeah, it'll, uh, yeah. It'll just be it'll be interesting to get there, and it'll be interesting to talk a little bit. I think when we get there too about just sort of genre novels um, in general, because they're they're fascinating to me. You know, as someone who's consumed a few in his time, whether it be Quantum Leap or Star Trek or Star Wars or Doctor Who, 
Oh God, Doctor Who. Uh, but uh, um, yeah, I, I I think that it'll be kind of interesting to touch on some of that stuff. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm yeah. looking forward to having a weekly reading assignment. Yes, um, you can. You know, the thing is, like when uh, I use, I would buy these books. It, it got to a string where they were always being released around Christmas time. So like they were. Uh, the yearly novel was like my Christmas present or one of the novels was my Christmas present for the year and like the rest of Christmas Day I would just sit there and I would just read the book in one setting and that was it mm. and let's think about genre books uh, not a deep read <laughs> right right, right. Uh, you, you can easily consume it in a day <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely that is that is very true I think of uh, the Quantum Leap books and, 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 and a lot of those especially like some of the early like pocket you know, Star Trek novels, you know, that were, I mean, in some cases, even under 200 pages, so it was definitely, in, you know, an afternoon, uh, or a couple of hours, but, um, yeah, yeah, I, I, lots to say, I always have lots to say, naturally, of course, why this podcast is what it is, but, uh, <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to talking a little bit about it, I think it could be fun. Same. Oh, oh, sorry, YouTube channel popped up, never mind. Oh my goodness, oh, what, what is happening What here? are we gonna do? Uh... I think, uh, you know, think unless it. you have anything else to add, though, I think I'm... Uh, I'm ready to go. Let's see about it. You got a, you got a crying baby that we had to pause for and, and jump I out. I do. She's, you know, she's she's being soothed right now, but I'm about ready to go upstairs and take over because it's uh, that's that's my duty at this point in the evening. You know, that's um, you know that this has been an ongoing thing with... Uh, it, thank you for listening. We're just talking about dad stuff here. Hang around if you're interested in the dad stuff. If not, <laughs> just skip ahead a few seconds to, I'm just a traveler. Uh... <laughs> but, but yes, but uh, for, for quite a while we've, we've been in this pattern where Harrison will wake up in the middle of the night and he'll go back to sleep. Some nights he'll go back to sleep pretty easily. Other nights he'll be just kind of like up and restless for two or three hours and Betsy and I just take turns yeah, staying in the room, sleeping with him. And yeah. 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 That's, it's kind of, she's, she's in a, in a phase right now where she just, um, it's so strange because she definitely doesn't want to be put down. Yeah. But she's also not making it super easy to hold her. Like, it used to be that it was just very easy to just kind of, like, you know, cradle her on my chest or cradle her in my arms. And she would just sleep and I could just hold her like that if she didn't want to be put down. Yeah. But now she's, like, it's, it, you know, she's just kind of moving around, wiggling around. And she's asleep, sort of-ish. But she's not, you know, she's not really settling. Uh. So it's, you know, it is what it is. It's that that's parenthood, right? That's, that's what it is. That's why we went from being a weekly podcast to uh, a couple times a month. We to whenever we damn well feel to whenever, like. <laughs> to whenever we can get to a microphone. But I, I, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I, for me, it's just all about, it's, it's about extending our joy. Yes. You know, it's a, why rush to the finish line when we can. Leisurely lumber our way into <laughs> We're going to leisurely get there. We're going to get some guests back on the episode at some point. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Maybe even for it's a wonderful leave. Maybe we'll see. We'll throw that out there. Uh, All right. Well, have a have a good night. Say give give my love to the family. Absolutely, you do the same. All right. It's always good to see you. Good to talk to you, my friend. You as well. And, and uh, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hit us up. Talk to us. Tell us what you think about season four versus season three and uh we'll 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 hopefully be doing this again real soon yeah talk to y'all soon
Bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed what you've heard or have any questions or comments, don't be shy. Reach out to us online at www.quantumleappod.com or Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Fates Wide Wheel. And remember to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you may be listening. Until next time. Yeah.